The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today we are going to talk about a very interesting and concerning topic, nanotechnology. My guest is Dr. Steve Supan. He is a senior policy analyst involved in market regulation, trade, and technology at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Supan at a Union of Concerned Scientists meeting where we explored the connections between food systems, health policy, and democracy. And when I learned that he had written a report titled Nanotechnology Risk to Soil Health, my interest was immediately peaked because I thought we haven't studied this topic enough and we need to explore the risks and benefits. So without further ado, Dr. Supan, welcome. Thank you very much, Melinda. Pleasure to be on your program. Well, I need to know first how you got involved or how you became interested in the topic of nanotechnology. Well, the interest was basically driven by curiosity about the application of nanotechnology to agriculture because nanotechnology applications traditionally have been of an industrial type. The the largest economically most valuable application has been essentially super-duper electroplating of semiconductors. So basically the huge computer server farms, cell phones, wouldn't be possible without that kind of super-duper electric plating for very low heat generating conductivity of of electricity. But the applications to agriculture, for the most part, are in the research and development stage. And some of the applications were counterintuitive, and that piqued my interest. And so I started to gradually investigate what was going on in in order to use my, my background in regulation to determine, you know, what parts of those applications probably should be candidates for regulation. Mm-hmm. We should probably back up one step and just describe what nanotechnology is. Well, first, you might want to begin with kind of the definition of, of nanomaterials, and there's a lot of disagreement about that because the, the kind of the classical definition concerns atomic to molecular size materials. Uh, a nanometer is one billionth of a meter. You know, human hair is in the range of 80,000 to 100,000 nanometers in, in diameter. So basically we're talking about a very, very small materials, but the commercially interesting thing about these materials is they have very different properties in the nano size than they do in the in the macro size, and it's that those kind of properties, the physical chemical properties of, of nanomaterials that sort of have driven the investment in the technology. And at this point, the U.S. government investment since the creation of the National Nanotechnology Initiative 
in 2000 is upwards of $20 billion. Hmm. Well, in preparing for this discussion, I went to a site that you actually recommended, which is www.nano.gov. And everything on that site seems extremely positive. There is a good nanotechnology 101 place where people can learn about trying to get our, our heads around the size. It says, imagine something so small that it's a million times smaller than the length of an ant. I think inherently it is hard for human beings to get their heads around something that is so extremely small. And the thought of regulating or containing it seems almost impossible. So especially as it applies to broad spread application to something like an agricultural field. So in looking at the IATP document, which you wrote, we're talking about sustainable intensification and the use of these engineered nanoscale materials to basically, you know, this feed the world notion that we need so much more production in order to feed this 9 billion global population projected for 2050. So tell me how we go from these nanoscale materials in agriculture to feeding the billions of people expected by 2050? Well, and so part of kind of the agro-nanotechnology narrative is, is tied to the broader nanotechnology narrative about how you have these unique chemical properties. So, for example, the use of nanotitanium dioxide in food packaging is supposed to retard ultraviolet ray spoiling of, right. of, of vegetables to maintain the, the look of freshness. In an agricultural application as opposed to a food application, the part of the, the theory of the efficiency of agro-nanotechnology inputs is that plant pores are in the nanoscale range. And so, for example, if you were able to make a nano-sized fertilizer pellet or a nano-coating on fertilizer to release only as much fertilizer as a plant would, would demand, you know, the theory is that you, you have a more efficient use of the fertilizer and uh, much less leaching of fertilizer into water and, and volatilizing into air. When you put nanomaterials, typically nanosilver, into pesticide products, the, the theory again is that because there's a very, very, very high surface to mass ratio of in, in nanomaterials, that there would be a kind of greater dispersion or distribution of the toxin due to the, the nanomaterial encapsulation, and it would more directly apply to, you know, to whatever the pest was or the, or the weed disease was, and that you would use much less mass of mm-hmm. pesticide. And so those are the, those are the kind of, I guess you call the research and development visions of uh, agro-nanotechnology. This year, under the 2014-2015 or budget of the USDA, they have about $18 million for nanotechnology research, and that doesn't count the amount of money that uh, FDA has for food applications of nanotechnology in the, in the neighborhood, I believe, of about $30 million. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there is some significant money being being put into 
agriculture and nanotechnology applications in at least three or four different agencies. Mm -hmm. And then it also looks like there's going to be private-public partnerships with the industry that's creating them as well as university research centers. Is that correct? Right. A lot of the difficulty in in, uh, sort of accessing some of this research is that because of the public-private partnership structure, some of it is considered confidential business information. Other parts of the research in the National Institute for Food and Agriculture, you do get sort of a a delayed reporting of, of what it is they're doing in terms of trying to understand, for example, the effect of the addition of nanomaterials in a laboratory setting on soil microbial mass, which is kind of an indicator of soil health. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, in preparation for our interview, I also went to the Center for Food Safety because we're looking at both the production of food products through an agricultural lens and the application of nanotechnology, but we're also looking at the number of products that already are incorporating nanotechnology that I think most consumers would be rather surprised to learn. For example, in 2013, the Center for Food Safety, they had an inventory where they reported that there are about 300 food or food-related products whose manufacturers claim to incorporate these nano particles, or they call engineered nanoscale materials. But the last time I checked a food label, I didn't see that there for me to, you know, automatically see whether it was in the food product or in the food packaging. Right, yeah. I don't know the circumstances of the withdrawal of that inventory. I think part of the the difficulty of doing an inventory where you're kind of relying on, on internet research about uh, manufacturers' claims is that the manufacturers will sometimes withdraw those claims. Maybe at one point they thought that claiming incorporation of nanomaterials would be a positive marketing point, and then in response to you know consumer or perhaps even regulator concern, they decided to withdraw that claim. Mm-hmm. So the list of products is uncertain, but you know there are definitely nanomaterials being incorporated into products, and I think you know, the, the lion's share of, the, of those are, are industrial. However, one thing has to be said about the analysis of nanomaterials in food is that it's a very expensive proposition because just the equipment for uh, visualizing nanomaterials in a, in a food paste is, is quite expensive. An electron tunneling microscope runs about a million and a half dollars a machine. Wow. So, you know, if you were to take, as the Dutch government did, a series of products to determine which of those products had nanomaterials in them, whether or not they were intentionally put there, you know, you would be talking about a fairly expensive experiment for which you would probably only be able to rent the visualization machinery. So when the Dutch researchers did this kind of experiment with maybe a dozen or so uh, commercial processed foods. They found a wide range of percentage of nanomaterials within a product. So, for example, silicon dioxide is used in processed foods to try to make such products as processed soups to have a consistent texture. And they discovered that you know, the 
percentage of silicon dioxin that was at the nanoscale ranged from between 4 and around 30%, depending on the, on the product. And what's alarming about this is that now, you know, some, I think about, oh, maybe five years or so after the National Research Council told the National Nanotechnology Initiative that they, they really needed to do gastrointestinal studies of the effect of nanomaterials. These studies still haven't been published. I mean, they may, I'm, I'm sure that they're underway, but they, they haven't been published. Most nanotoxicology studies are inhalation studies mm-hmm. done with rats, with some studies concerning the, the effect of nanomaterials on, on skin. But actual ingestion of studies of the effects of ingesting nanomaterials, those are, are very, very few and far between. This is unbelievable to me that we would have food products in the marketplace where we have not done adequate safety testing with regard to how these products are going to interact with our gut microbes. And as you report in Nanotechnology Risk to Soil Health, there appears to be reason for concern when we look at earthworms. So we're going to jump into that, but let me first very quickly remind our listeners that we are talking with Dr. Steve Supan. He is a senior policy analyst at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. He's been there for about 20 years looking at international trade regulation and technology, and he is the author of a terrific report called Nanotechnology Risk to Soil Health. And Prior to our interview, Dr. Supan recommended that I check out Nanotechnology 101, which is a government website. I also went to the Center for Food Safety website and found a wonderful webinar that our listeners can go to to find out about nanotechnology applications both in food and then in agriculture. So let's jump there because I think that the parallels between what happens in the soil and what happens in our own bodies are significant and certainly very unclear, not well studied. But your concern about soil health with regard to having these nanoparticles present is something that I think we should all be considering. And your concern really came from the presence of nanomaterials in biosolids. Is that correct? Well, originally when I started my research, I was I was looking at some research talking about designing fertilizer to be nano-sized or, or, or nano-enabled. That, that's what kind of pricked my initial curiosity because I wanted to know what the effects would be on soil health. But those initiatives are in the research and development stage. And, and then during the course of, of study, I found out that researchers were more concerned about the the immediate impacts of fertilizing agricultural fields with with what the Environmental Protection Agency calls biosolids and these are chemically treated waste uh, sewage right and these are basically water filtration plants or water treatment plants excuse me water sanitation plants which were built prior to the growth of nanotechnology. And so it's uh, highly, highly questionable that these filtration systems are able to filter out the nanoparticles. And a a team of researchers at Duke University did the first, or I should say coordinated by Duke University, 
did the first field-like survey of you know of the of the presence of, of nanomaterials, and they you know, they tested for the effect of those nanomaterials on on plant growth, you know, kind of root and shoot growth, and on on microbial mass. And these are all kind of indicators of of soil health. And then surprisingly, they found out that, well, to their surprise, to my surprise certainly, that nano nano silver um, released a great deal more uh, methane into the air than than did macro sized silver sulfide, even at higher concentrations. And so, you know, methane is I think it's got about 300 times the greenhouse gas potential of carbon dioxide. And so this is a you know a very concerning issue. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the you, you mentioned the the earthworms and earthworms are kind of the charismatic species yes. of uh, of soil science testing. And yet there's a much more you know complex uh, feeding soil feeding chain that involves species much further down the feeding chain than than the earthworms and uh, I don't know of any studies that actually look at this soil feeding chain and indeed uh, I think it's it's worth remarking that um, there is no national law not just in the United States but anywhere that I could find designed to protect soil health uh, soil is kind of a, I don't know sort of a, a buffer that takes a lot of different kinds of abuses and um, whether or not, you know, as a as a farmer, as a conservationist, you you build soil is entirely up to you. There's there's not much um, financial incentive to do so. Mm-hmm. I thought that was amazing too. That we think about we've got laws to protect water quality, air quality, but soil, nothing. It's scientifically complex, and you know the the estimated worth of soil goes somewhere between you know priceless to uh, trillions of dollars. Right. Um, and you know what the, the uses of nanotechnology uh, in soil tend to focus on the capacity of um, of using uh, nano iron and magnets. <laughs> Basically, magnetized nano iron to clean up brownfields. You know, so very limited kind of or very specific uses in soil, as opposed to looking at you know what happens when, for example, nano silver accumulates in soil as a result of pesticide applications, mm-hmm. or what happens when uh, nano ceridium dioxide, which is an element of diesel fuel, you know, how does that affect soil? So you know those kinds of those kinds of issues are just starting to be studied. I, I want to go back to something that you said though is that is that these are you know I I, I give great great credit you know to the scientists and indeed to um, federal agencies that are funding some of this scientific work for you know doing precautionary science in the in the food product arena. However, I, I just find it incomprehensible that there wouldn't be, for example, uh, a requirement by the Environmental uh, Protection Agency to require submission of uh, both data and scientific literature, scientific studies 
from those companies that are designing pesticide products with nanomaterials. Right. Or, you know, companies that are designing food packaging material with nanomaterials because you, you know, you get their, the company assurances that uh, don't worry, you know, the nanomaterials inside this biopolymer are not going to cross from the biopolymer into the fruit or meat or whatever is being wrapped. But there's no publicly available data and when the EPA tried to require submission of, of, of nanomaterials, they were rebuffed by the industry and um, and didn't think they could use their legislative authority to mandate uh, submission of that data. So getting back to the soil, and I totally agree about regulation, I, and I would have expected the FDA to step in and say, no, we're not going to improve say, a, a teething ring for a child, for example, that was impregnated with a nanomaterial, or we were not going to, you know, we would somehow weigh the risks and benefits of the technology, and you think, well, okay, carbonation is an important factor in beer and soda, so the, the nanoparticles would be included in the can packaging or bottle. I'm not sure how exactly that works, but I, I read where, you know, some of these food applications would make it so that beverages would maintain their carbonation. But you think, okay, that might be a benefit, but what might be any unintended consequence of the technology to our biological systems? And now, you know, going taking that one step further, how do these technologies affect our soil, which seems to be the basis of our health? And I'm curious to know, with regard specifically to the biosolids or the, the sewage sludge, actually, how the nanoparticles become incorporated in those biosolids. Is it because the human consumption through the diet or through drugs are we're passing well, that? Well, yeah. So there's there's a few sources. I mean, first is the um, the nanomanufacturing centers themselves. Okay. So if you're if you're in the same watershed mm-hmm. as a nanomanufacturing center. You know, let's say a center that you know uh, that produces car bumpers for automobiles, and you put nanocarbon nanocarbon tubes to to strengthen you know lighter weight car bumpers, and you know, during the process, X percentage of those carbon nanotubes get into the waste stream. Another source where you would have carbon nanotubes. Getting into natural ecosystems would be if, let's say, you have electronic uh, equipment that is not, you know, properly recycled, but just goes into a landfill, mm-hmm. and you know, as it breaks down, then you know those electroplated parts of nanomaterials that that becomes a source of of nanomaterial contamination of soils. So there's a few. There's a few routes, but during my research, one thing I I discovered was that not even with uh, academic studies, you know, promising anonymity to the manufacturers, could these academics get a very certain read on on how many tons of nanomaterials were being produced in the United States, much less where they were being produced or how they're being applied. So if, if as a federal regulator, you were trying to set a maximum residue level for, you know, for a, a given nanomaterial, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have a data basis 
uh, on which to do it, except you know, as such data is is supplied by the manufacturer, and that manufacturer would be doing so presently on a voluntary basis, and you know, really they'd be putting themselves at a commercial disadvantage if only they did it and their competitors did not submit that data. Hmm. So I tell you one one anecdote that I found well a little disturbing to me at the uh, workshop of the nanotech nano uh, the National Nanotechnology Initiative. I I had suggested that that the NNI add a fifth goal. They have they have four goals right now, and I NNI should uh, develop and fund a world class research world class research projects into the environmental health and uh, and safety consequences of nanomaterials and, and nano-enabled technologies. And an official just said to me, well, that's never going to fly. That is in among the you know, people who are going to be writing the, the final report. What they did do, and I, I don't think it was just a concession to me, but I'd like to think that there were enough of us who were protesting a, a failure to prioritize environmental health and, and safety research is they have a, what they call a strategic initiative on nanobiosensors. And some of those nanobiosensors could be used for regulatory purposes, for the detection of, of nanomaterials in different kinds of environments. And so that's sort of a, oh, I, I guess a small concession toward investing a serious amount of money in impact research because most of the NNI budget is dedicated to product development. And you know, as a result, they are not going to be advocating the kind of research that you would require in order to uh, agree on regulations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so right now, 12, 15, no, 15, no 14 years later since the beginning of the the NNI, we are still in the uh, what they call the pre-regulatory phase, and there's certainly great reluctance among the agencies to to go to the U.S. Congress and say we need new authorities to regulate nanomaterials because they they behave so differently from macro-sized materials and the traditional, for example, the traditional. Food and Drug Administration parameter of judging uh, materials according to their structure and function. Uh, you know, we we don't have applicable toxicological metrics depend you know that are based on mass because the mass factor in in um, nanotechnology toxicity is all but irrelevant. You know, at, at uh, in terms of you know, commercial products, so we're uh, we're quite a ways away from having regulated commercialization of, of nanotechnologies and nanomaterials. Well, Dr. Supan, we'll have to end it at that, but I want to make sure that our listeners know about this terrific report that you've produced, Nanotechnology Risk to Soil Health, and assume, let's go in with this assumption, that if there's a risk to soil health, there might well be a risk to human health, but certainly more research is needed. And we have been speaking with Dr. Steve Supan. He is a senior policy analyst at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. We'll make sure to have that link to that report along with our website. 
I want to thank Dr. Supan for his time. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hamelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Supan, thank you so much for raising this issue with us and for helping us understand a little bit more about it. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Melinda.